Hello again, everyone. Uh, good morning, good evening, good afternoon, everybody around the world. Thanks for joining us. Another talk of Ibn Arabi Society. This is our series five of the talks. And today uh, we have uh, Cyrus Ali Zargor with us in order to, to talk about the, um, um, the session and then kick our series five. I'll make a brief introduction uh, about Cyrus. Cyrus Azizargar is Al-Ghazali Distinguished Professor of Islamic Studies at the University of Central Florida. His most recent book, The Polished Mirror, Storytelling and the Pursuit of Virtue in Islamic Philosophy and Sufism was published in 2017 by One World Press. His acclaimed Sufi aesthetics, beauty, love, and the human form in the writings of Ibn Arabi and Iraqi was published in 2011 by the University of South Carolina Press. He also works as reviews editor for JMIAS. Uh, welcome, Cyrus. We're happy to have you. Thank you. Uh, so this is part of a, a series of lectures, as you can see, called the, um, the Geometry of Reality. And uh, so let's get started. Okay, well, my talk for today um, will be about Fana and Baqa from a certain perspective. And those of you familiar with uh, Ibn Arabi and familiar with Sufism have probably heard of these terms, Fana and Baqa, or um, annihilation and remaining. They're very distinctively associated with Sufism. And of course, Ibn Arabi has much to say about both of them. My interest in, in these terms today is mostly related to debates regarding them. So let me, let me start with uh, the question uh, or the questions that I had in the, uh, the abstract. Claims of mystical union have often been met with suspicion and criticism within an Islamic context. Identifying a person's actions with God's has raised an important question. Would such a person still be liable for his or her actions outside of a strictly Islamic context a key question surrounding union has been one of objectivity, namely the relationship between reality and perception. There's a lot to unpack there, as I hope to do. Let me let me just say uh, that the uh, the question of 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 union, if we take annihilation and and baqa remaining fana and baqa in a comparative perspective, and we start to talk about them as what's called mystical union. There's a much larger debate about them in religious studies and in the study of what's called mysticism. And it's interesting to me the way that those questions resemble questions that have appeared within Islam and within Sufism as well. So I'm, I'm thinking about, if you, if you know the philosopher Stephen Katz, um, Stephen Katz ha has dealt with this question about, about mystical experience generally and has asked the question, well, you know, is what occurs for the person real or is it perceived? And you'll see that that's one of the questions here, the re relationship between reality and perception. Is what the person who, who has this experience called fana and, has, and baqa has this experience, is it real or is it perceived? Is, is it something that's uh, within themselves or is, is it, is, does it connect to some reality? Stephen Katz is interesting because he, he has a, a sort of middle way solution, which is to say he, it's called contextualism, which is that there might be a transcendent reality or there even is definitely in some cases a transcendent reality. But 
that transcendent reality happens within a certain context. And that context is the person's religious language. And that's why there's, there's really nothing the same about mystical experience across religions, which is counterintuitive to a lot of us and goes against what, what others have said, like William James, who studied uh, mystical experience from, from the perspective of psychology and even used psychedelics to, to kind of make them happen. There's a sense for him, for others, Rudolf Otto, Walter Stace, uh, Stace Zayner, uh, Ninian Smart. There's a sense for, for them that there is some shared reality between different religious traditions. I'm not here to, to weigh in on that topic, but just to say that this relationship between perception and reality, you know, is fana and baqa real or is it something just perceived? This isn't something that's just being asked within Sufism. It, it really relates to through religious studies and, this, and study of mysticism today. Within Sufism, you have, I would say, the, the majority view. Those who, who hold to Fana and Baqa as uh, legitimate experiences, those who even advocate them, advocate it as an end goal. This is what you'll find in most of the texts, right? But you'll also find a sort of other side. And that is those who bring into question this link between perception and reality. And those who do put, they don't use, they might not use the word psychological. Uh, they might not use the word, you know, perception. But I mean, if we had to break it down simply and essentially, that's, that's kind of what they're saying. That is what they're saying. And that group that other group that brings things into question, whether Sufis or not, let's say Muslim scholars, they've also questioned the idea that, okay, well, if you're going to advocate this thing where a person perceives Fanan Baqa, and I'll define them in just a second, Fanan Baqa, because I actually haven't defined them yet, but that's okay. Just bear with me for a second. If a person perceives that they're uh, a Fanan Baqa, that, that, you know, that all actions are God's and their actions are God's, what, what keeps them bound to religious law? You know, I'm going to get to that too. So fana and baqa, fana annihilation, the, the annihilation, disillusion, the disappearance of illusions of selfhood and everything temporary. Now, it sounds pretty absolute, but there are grades and levels to fana. So every time a person, uh, every time a person takes a major step away from, from selfhood and illusions of, of temporality and all that, that's a kind of fana. It's not to say that fana is always exhaustive and complete and that a person once they undergo fana, no, no, no. I mean, that there's a working toward uh, fana. There's all kinds. I mean, I, I won't get into it to my talk, but um, Ibn Arabi discusses seven different types of fana and baqa. I can't get to that, but it's that complex. Baqa is the flip side to fana. Baqa remaining is remaining in that which is timeless. Remaining in that which actually remains remaining in God, remaining in the real. Now, some have said that the two always go hand in hand. That is to say, as one undergoes fana, as one, as the self disappears, like a, the way I would explain it metaphorically would be if you're on a, if you're on a boat and you get on a pier, you know, you're stepping off the boat. As you step off the boat, it lifts, right? As you get onto reality, you know, what I have, it might not be the best metaphor, but the point is 
the two, some have said the two go absolutely hand in hand, and some have described one as a later stage of the first. Okay, and there's all kinds of complexity in that that for today I'll leave aside because I want to talk about this very specific question of perception versus reality and the law and how it fits in. And, and because Ibn Arabi had some really fascinating things to say about that. So first, let me introduce to you some of those who have brought into question the relationship between perception and reality when it comes to fana and baqa, specifically the kind of uh, the experience of fana and baqa as described by Ibn Arabi, uh, where one perceives a kind of uh, unity of existence, if you want to call it that, and the linked reality behind all things. S- some of it you could see in a pretty recent, relatively recent writer compared to the others I'll mention, Ahmed Sirhindi, an Akhshbadi Mujaddidi writer, has really from the uh, 17th century, has some really fascinating things to say about it. Ala Adola Simnani, the famous Kubravi writer, presents an alternative to what was becoming a popular Ibn Arabi-esque Akbarian way of looking at things that was related to Fana and Baqa, his, his view of Fana and Baqa and, and its link to reality. But the one, the one I, I'll talk about is... Uh, Ibn Qayyim al-Jawziyah. And Ibn, Ibn Qayyim al-Jawziyah, we'll come to him in a second. His writings ended up, up separating this perception versus reality thing, ended up becoming the most, I would say probably now, they're, they're among the most cited, though Ahmed Hindi too. I mean, they're, Ibn Qayyim ends up being read a lot. And he's read way outside of just you know, Sufi circles and things like that. People are very interested in his view on this. So I, he's the one that I know best, and I'll be dealing with him, but there's other points of views that bring into question the link between perception and reality. And let me say that the point of view that, that, uh, that perceiving this dissolution of selfhood could be disastrous for Islamic theology is also shared by those who see fana baqan, the oneness, this, the, the, the unveiling of this oneness of reality that, thereby, they see that potential, that potentially uh, disastrous uh, implication there, because it's not hard to imagine that when ba- when the boundaries that are needed for law and obedience seem temporal and seem to not to exist, that a person could lean toward everything being permissible. That's the question, and and. Even, you know, so let me give you an example before I go to Ibn Arabi. Let me give you an example from the famous theologian Abu Hamad Ghazali. So uh, those who know Abu Hamad Ghazali uh, know that he's very guarded when it comes to these issues. So, so there, there is, a, there is um, a time when he d- does allude to Fana and Baqa in his um in his famous uh his famous al maqsad al asna fi sharhi asma illah al husna the what's translated as the uh, 99 beautiful names the beautiful treatise in which al ghazali makes the case for how a human being can bring each of the 99 names into the reality of their lives and make manifest each of the 99 names it's really uh, the ultimate in this idea of takhalluq bi akhlaqillah the 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 um, acquisition of God's character traits, if you want to call them that. In other words, the conversion of divine names into character traits, he has quite a bit to say about it. 
But he gets to this name Allah. Uh, and, and this is what he says. He says it befits the servant for his portion of this name, the name Allah, to become godlike. Now, the, the problem, of course, with making manifest the name Allah is what is the name Allah? It's the comprehensive name. It's all the names together. How can a person make manifest all the names together in their life? So this is what he says. I mean that one's heart and determination become drowned in Allah, exalted and glorified so that he sees none other than him, pays attention to none other than him, hopes in none other than him, and fears none other than him. And how could it be otherwise when this name brings us to understand that he is the one true and real existent and all other than him is undergoing annihilation, fana, perishing and false, except through him. Thus, to begin with, the aspirant sees his own soul as that which is the foremost of all that is perishing and false. So what he's saying is that fana, the experience of fana, is this manifestation of the greatest name Allah or the comprehensive name Allah. Okay, but... And, and he makes as a case, he alludes to this verse, this famous verse from the Quran that you'll see repeatedly in Sufi texts when it comes to Fana and Baqa, where God says, you, Muhammad, did not throw when you threw, but it was God who threw. Okay. Uh, this is a, this action, uh, Prophet Muhammad's action, isn't attributed to God in, in, in to say that, in, insofar as to say uh, that God forced him, compelled him to do that that he's somehow a marionette. No, he's not, that's not what he's saying. It's, it's, it's rather saying that the reality of this action, which is, which is known by the prophet, is that God is the actor, is that God is the Jordan. And so he points to this, and this is the very verse that's going to, be, that's going to become very con- uh, controversial for someone like Ibn Qayyim, though he deals with it not in the context of Ghazali, as far as I'm concerned, but Ibn Arabi and Ibn Arabi students. But still, this is that same verse, you know, because it, makes a, it, it brings together human and divine action in a way that he's uncomfortable with. My point, though, is that, he, that this is almost all uh, Abu Hamad Ghazali says, Imam Ghazali says. He backs away from it and says, listen, this is a... This is a, an ocean of secrets. It's an abyss in an ocean without shore, and we can't deal with it any further. So he backs away. Why is it a secret? Again, because uh, if it is a reality, and, and Abu Hamad Ghazali seems to say that it is a reality, uh, and people know this reality, then what happens with the necessary boundaries for someone to, to obey God? Now, uh, there's a beautiful uh, Kitab al-Fana, translated by uh, Leila Shamish and uh, Steve, uh, Stephen Hurtinson. Uh, it's all available online. I, I, I don't. I don't think you can. Uh, I don't think you can access links through Zoom. Um, but it's actually on the uh, Mohidin Ibn Arabi Society website. This is the, the entire the, the treatise of Ibn Arabi on the Kitab al-Fana is translated, and this comes from that. And I just wanted to point out that even Ibn Arabi advocates for uh, keeping keeping all this a secret. So what he says is he points out that Hassan al-Basri, when Hassan al-Basri wanted to talk about things like Fanan Baqa, he would take special students, take them aside and, t- uh, and talk to them. Ibn Abbas, the great uh, early commentator on the Quran, when he, would, when he talks about this verse, uh, verse uh, 6512, he says, were I to explain his real meaning, you would stone me. And uh, Imam Ali ibn Abi Talib, same thing. Uh, that in his chest, you know, uh, there, 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 
there are things that people can't handle, right? And there, he gives more examples from, from I believe, uh, Abu Bakr and uh, uh, Abu Huraira. And he, go, he gives a lot of interesting examples of, of people who had to keep things a secret. And then he points out that the way of keeping all this a secret has, has traditionally been using a kind of language that other people couldn't understand. Conceal these mysteries with agreed technical expressions as a precaution against those who are outsiders. The language was so difficult to unpack that a person couldn't read it. Well, that's true. But as we'll see, that mysterious language uh, that is exemplified in the early Sufi from Baghdad, Junaid, right, can also be misread in a way where Ibn Arabi became inter- misinterpreted. And, and some of what he, was, what he was saying is taken out of context and all that. So I just say that to say the danger, the danger is agreed upon by all. The danger of this secret getting out is agreed upon by all. So let's get to uh, Ibn Qayyim's uh, criticism. Ibn Qayyim is from from Damascus, uh, trained under the uh, very famous Ibn Taymiyyah, famous also... uh, very much opposed to Ibn Arabi and his teachings of Ibn Taymiyyah. So it's an interesting kind of uh, sort of head-to-head dichotomy thing we have going on here. But uh, Ibn Qayyim knew the Sufi tradition. He knew it well. He is, in fact, uh, he was part of a chain uh, of, uh, of Hanbali uh, pious men. His, uh, he, that chain for him involved Ibn Taymiyyah. He, was, he wasn't just Ibn Taymiyyah's student. He was very devoted to Ibn Taymiyyah. They were they were imprisoned together for some time. So he, he knows the Sufi tradition well, but he's going to push back against the idea that uh, there's this reality in Fana and Baqa that uh, Ibn Arabi and his students sort of uh, uh, dwell on, right? And it's the dwelling on it and the reality of it that he wants to push back against. And where he pushes back against that uh, is on a commentary of this famous book called Manazil Sa'irin Ila al-Haq, the way stations of the wayfarers, of the travelers to God, to the real. It's by Khaja Abdullah Ansari, who's from Herat, also a Hanbali. Uh, and fascinatingly, no, you know, he, he's, there's no like link between him and him and Arabi in terms of, uh, you know, um, initiation and all that. But uh, as far as I know, but that text ends up being just such a, a perfect text for Ibn Arabi students, or rather the students of his students, the students of Qunawi, to comment on. And so the uh, 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 Abdul Razak Kashani comments on it, Tilamsani comments on it. You get these commentaries on this text, the, the um, Manazil, that highlight the, the later stages that, that Abdullah Ansari um, describes for the person being annihilation and, and oneness, union with God, uh, that highlight that and put it in the language of this ultimate reality that, that Ibn Arabi describes, this, 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 uh, wujud, this wujudi experience. And that's what bothers Ibn Qayyim. This is what Ibn Qayyim pushes back against. You can see his link to, to Khaj Abdullah Ansari is in that uh, Khaj Abdullah Ansari is, uh, is a Hanbali like him. They're, they share the same school of thought. And so he writes his own commentary and he criticizes in it Ibn Arabi's uh, uh, students, especially, he criticizes especially Tilamsani. Uh, in this commentary. And, and he says, when he gets to annihilation, annihilation to such a person is the end goal of the knowers. Okay, this is what, this is what they say. The truest, fullest extent of Tawheed, Tawheed being knowing the oneness of God. Such a person, 
sees everything in terms of whether it might undo or end annihilation, including God's commands, prohibitions, or other such matters. Let me unpack that. He's saying that for these people, annihilation is so real that it becomes more important than Sharia, than God's laws itself, because they say that anything that helps them achieve or maintain that state, that state of consciousness, anything that helps them get there and stay there is more important than obeying God. And so they can ignore, cast aside God's law to achieve it and to maintain it. Some have even said that commands and prohibitions do not apply to one who has witnessed divine will. So this is what Ibn Qayyim says. And um, moreover, uh, he makes this statement that relates directly to our talk. This is the, I'll, I'll read the quote. This is the sort of inspiration, again, Ibn Qayyim is saying this. This is the sort of inspiration that when it comes on, upon a person, undoes all intermediate phenomena, obliterating them and bringing them to a sort of nothingness. He's describing phenomena. Saying it's the kind of inspiration that makes you sense, have this sense. Nevertheless, nevertheless, this is in terms of shuhud. Well, you could call it witnessing. You can call it perception. This happens in terms of shuhud, not wujud, not existence, not in terms of, we could say, reality. The people of unification, al-ittihadiyah, which is what he calls Ibn Arabi and his students, claim that there is a oneness of being and thus attribute this undoing and sense of nothingness to the all-encompassing oneness of existence. Moreover, they include Khaj Abdul Ansari among them. They say he shares this view, this, this great Hanbali saint. While he is innocent of such charges in terms of his understanding, his religion, his spiritual state, and his acquaintance with God, God, of course, knows best. Okay. A big part of his commentary is trying to distance uh, Ansari from these views, but that's he's not our topic for today. Our topic is this relationship between perception and reality. So let's dig in. Let's dig into what Ibn Arabi says. So first, point one, annihilation and remaining, that is to say, fana and baqa, are not simply shuhudi, but also part of a way of reading the Quran uh, into, um, uh, but also a part, of a, way, a, a part of a way of reading the Quran into psychology and cosmology. That is to say, Ibn Arabi will consistently point out ways in which fana and baqa are not simply something that are, that's, that's perceived but part of the very system of being that we all live in. That is to say, part of existence, part of the solar system, the cosmology, part of the biology, you'll see, it, it, part of everything. So I thought I'd, I'd, I'd do that through poetry because I like poetry and uh, I find it's a nice thing, you know, to unpack a poem. Sometimes is the best way to, uh, uh, to explain things. So this comes from uh, chapter 558 in the Futuhat al-Makiyah. Al Let me read it. To the moon belongs annihilation at every phase, while to the sun belong illumination and remaining, as they do to that beautiful face with every sort of comeliness, which gives us from itself a smile and the encounter. We guard that comeliness from every gazing eye as the inner bark guards the insides of a tree. He sent us down from the sky into existence. His is the encompassing throne. His is the cloud. His is the turning toward us and the turning away from us. His is the rule he has over radiance as well as radiance itself. When he approaches near, 
his gatherings are comfortable. You might say wide. His, his, his gatherings are, 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 are comfortable, spacious. And when he raises a, us up, ours is the commendation. His is the rule he has over volition in my being. He is free to choose. He does what he wishes. Okay. So this is fascinating in just so many different ways. And really, we could spend the rest of our time talking about these lines of poetry. I'm tempted to do so, but I'll, I'll, I'll make it brief because I have one more point to make before I close out. So first, the idea that uh, Fana and Baqa can be described as a, a relationship between the sun and the moon, that doesn't begin with Ibn Arabi. You see it, I think, even be- way before him, Kharaqani, there's others who had this, who've used this image. But let's deal with Ibn Arabi's version now. One thing we'll see is that you can witness the very process of annihilation and remaining in the relationship between the sun and the moon. Now, I don't know the degree to which this is a question for others. I'm talking about geometry of reality. I don't know the degree to which uh, Ibn Arabi's uh, astronomy and the astronomy we use today resembled each other. But uh, to me, it seems that in this case they do. The moon is always disappearing, right? You could talk about the phases of the moon. And the sun is always remaining. Now, for us, the, observ- in the observable sense, you know, every day you wake up, there's the sun. It's always there. The, the moon comes and goes. Fine. But in another sense, the sun is clearly a source of illumination, a source of illumination while, uh, while the moon receives it. Now, this is clearly uh, uh, very similar to what happens with Fanan Baqa. To say that a human being receives illumination and that there is some other source of illumination what would be the problem with saying that fana is simply a realization of that, right? There's also something else that's quite interesting about this, and it comes out in the next slide. I have some more from this, uh, this very passage when he, he explains his own poem. That is to say that the body has a, its own kind of light, that it derives, according to Ibn Arabi, from the sun, which makes sense. Because it does, I mean, that's, that's how we are alive and that's where our bodies get the, the light that they need and the food that comes from that light and all that. But the, the, the body uh, relies on, on in, the, in the sun that it has its own luminosity. The soul has its own luminosity that comes from a much higher place, right? And in and, and one way, you can have lights outshining lights. So you can see even, even in terms of body and soul, what we could call biology, what we could call the human body, there's, there's, there's some link to reality when it comes to Fana and Baqa. Why guard this? You'll notice the language of the secret. You might remember I said that when Fana and Baqa come up, there's always this element of the secret because of the undoing of boundaries and the risks involved. And look what he says. He says, we guard it from every gazing eye. He makes it sound like a kind of jealousy, like a lover's jealousy. And that's a good way to describe it. The, the lover wants that beauty uh, not to be seen by those who are unworthy. And that's very much what Ibn Arabi uh, is advocating when it comes to Fana and Baqa. You'll also see, and I'll, I'll just point this out and move forward, there's a relationship with God uh, in Fana and Baqa, where in some cases here, he, he, um, he comes down. You could see it as him coming down to earth in a way, him coming down to you in a way. And, and there's a sense of comfort in that. But when he does the opposite, when it's a, a matter of lifting you up to him, you become the praiseworthy one in that relationship because he's so generous. 
Okay, but before we get into all kinds of other ambiguities, let me just stick with the main, and this is the same chapter, uh, 558. He says a lot more. Ibn Arabi also points out that the reason we all have different kinds of knowledge and different perspectives that come from our physical constitutions. Now, this is a pretty uh, involved thing to talk about if we wanted to get into it. But the reason we all have different perspectives comes from the constitutions that we have, the bodies that we have, the physical constitutions, as well as the origins of the body. Thinking about that physicality as something temporary, thinking about that physicality as something that's not as true in terms of existence as light itself, as spirit itself, you can begin to see how that's something perceived. I mean, it has a reality to it without doubt, but it's less real than the life of the spirit that's not connected to those differences. I mean, that's, a, that's a hard one because I just want to throw that out there because this is him talking about his own point. And I won't get into some of the other points I wanted to make about the way the, the body might be illuminated from a different source uh, in, in the resurrection. Let, let's, let's move on then. Point two, finally, to wrap up, uh, to, to finish up this discussion. So annihilation and remaining, you might remember, were seen as a kind of threat to the order of law, the order of obedience, to the very revealed relationship in the Quran between master and servant. But I, I would argue that in Ibn Arabi's writings, annihilation and remaining fanan baqa, they don't free a person from the law. Actually, they make the law much realer. They make the law much realer. Um, let's, let me show you what I mean by that. So first we get this from chapter 560. Ibn Arabi says, have certainty in the worldlies, in dunya's constant state of annihilation, and the afterlife's, al-akhirah's constant state of remaining. So you see there's a link there between annihilation and, uh, and what's in the dunya, what's disappearing, this temporal domain, and the uh, afterlife's constant state of remaining, where what remains in the afterlife after a person's resurrected, that, that has a kind of reality to it that you're trying to connect with in this life. Let me put it like this. What is law? What is law but a, a sort of message from the other side, a message from what's remaining, a message from the realm of Baqaf to the people of Fana, if that makes sense. What is law if not that? And that's the, the kind of realization that occurs for, some, for someone like that. Now, it, you can see obedience as something like, okay, well, I obey so that this, this uh, judge on the day of judgment doesn't punish me. And that's a simplistic way of looking at it. Another way of looking at it is, I obey so that I'm in accord with, in accordance with, aligned with the reality that remains after death when all the, when all this temporal stuff begins to show itself and show its true reality and nature. I want to be aligned with that reality and that's what, that's what obedience to law is. Let me show you a bit more in that regard. Well, I'm going to, I, I, I'm going to actually skip my, I, I'll just point this out because I want to get to Professor Chutkowitz's research. Let me just point out that these lines were often misunderstood when it came to Ibn Arabi's views of, um, of Fana and Baqa, uh, because they seem to imply that a person no longer is held by the law. 
but suffice it to say that that's not what these lines actually mean. You know, uh, I mean, I've already kind of explained it, but I'll give you the short version. Would that I knew who is subject to obligation, who is the mukallaf. If you say it is the servant, the servant is dead. And if you say it is the Lord, whence would obligation come? Sounds like he's saying, well, where's obligation? The servant's dead. God's not there. No, he's not saying that. He's pointing out a kind of heira. He says that himself in the longer version of the passage, a kind of bewilderment, befuddlement, confusion, a, a sort of inspired confusion. There's this thing, it's obligation. The, the, servants, the servant has passed away. The master can't be made obligation. So where is it? So it's like quantum physics. You know, it's, Quantum physics tells us that, that these electrons are neither here nor there. So you just say, well, does that mean we're not here? You're not actually saying we're not here. You're saying, well, I'm bewildered by the beauty of this system. Okay, but let me just point out that when it comes to this issue of fanan and law, and this is why I can make my discussion of this part short, um, it's already been discussed uh, 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 very beautifully by, uh, by uh, Professor uh, Shutkowitz. Uh, he, he says in uh, An Ocean Without Shore on page 128, extinction fana does not bring about the dissolution of human matter. The body remains subject to legal obligation. On the outside, the yoke of lordship continues to be exercised, but what is botan in this life, vahir in the life to come, at that time, the authority uh, of the law will definitively, definitively cease. That is to say, and this is something that is clear. I mean, even Muslim scholars of law would say, that don't take it as something very radical, that law is for this world, not in the hereafter. There's no law. I mean, uh, you can see that even in the Quranic descriptions of the afterlife, uh, that, that Sharia is binding while there's a body. So it, Professor Shurtkowitz has really done a wonderful job talking about it. Uh, I, re I refer you to these, to An Ocean Without Shore, as well as here on page 57 of the same book, where he says, uh, the law is not the cloak or the symbol of haqiqah. It's not that to say that the law is something that's covering up haqiqah, of a hidden truth that might be reached by transgression, like Ibn Qayyim was saying earlier. It is the haqiqah, right? It thus imposes itself absolutely and up to the last iota on the arif, arif billah, as well as on the ama, as well as on the com commonality, on the common believers, on everybody, because it's the reality, it's God's wish. And that's what we get to in my last slide, which I'm about to get to. I also want to point out Eric Winkle's book. If you, if anyone ever doubts that Ibn Arabi is uh, interested in Islamic law and an advocate of it, well, first of all, in the hereafter sense, read chapter 64 of Futahat al-Makiyah. He has a long hadith that's this kind of lex talionis version of the afterlife. Not to say that that's what he advocates, but to say that he, under, he, he knows its place in Islamic piety and Islamic reality. His interpretation of it might be different, but he knows it. Eric Winkle's book, uh, excellent book about Ibn Arabi's approach to law that I highly recommend. Okay, so let's end then. Just, just about four more minutes, if you don't mind. So encountering the real is a do obligatory. Ibn Arabi says this in Afutahat al-Makiyah, chapter 369. And I apologize if my, my translations are off at times. I kind of try to do my best to get the sense. Encountering the real is a do obligatory. So rejoice at every good in the encounter. From us, for us, from us is annihilation and remaining. While, while for us, from him is being an encounter. Think about that. We have annihilation. He has wujud. We have remaining. He has the encounter. We have the encounter. That is to say that you can call it fana and baqa, or you can call it wujud and liqa. You can call it existence and meeting Allah. 
right? And if you see it in that sense, then everything that the person does in Fanan Baqarah to achieve it or to be there, everything is really to try to meet God. And that is the essence of Sharia, a meeting with God, to be prepared to meet with God, to be worthy of meeting with God. How, how and let me get to my last slide, how could one, how could one um, uh, say they want to meet with God? Say they want the, the, the encounter, which is the baqa, the remaining in God. How could someone say that and yet at the same time not advocate for wanting what God wants? And that's my last slide in line with this. Ibn Arabi says um, in his comment, his, uh, this is from chapter 424 of Al-Futuhat al-Mikiyah. He's commenting on this famous verse. He, God loves them, he loves them, and they love him. And Ibn Arabi says, he is both lover and beloved, God. And then he, he gives us this poem, and I'll end with this, and then we'll, we can talk. Whoever loves annihilation loves to meet me. That's, that, that's a beautiful way of, of commenting on that verse. Whoever loves annihilation loves to meet me. Whoever loves remaining loves the homecoming. No degree of existence remains when witnessing takes place. Thrown to the ground, you'll see all of engendered existence in witnessing. Think about that. Whoever loves annihilation loves to meet me. Whoever loves remaining loves the homecoming. And Ibn Arabi says over and over again, in Al-Futuhat al-Mikyeh, in, in his comments on the Tarjuman, in everywhere, I mean, where have you not seen Ibn Arabi say that the definition of a lover is to love what the beloved wants, loves, to love what the beloved loves, even if the beloved, he says, loves separation to love what the beloved loves. And if we see the Sharia as a series of, of uh, preferences that God has, loves that God has, things that God has, has decreed, then you'll see that the, the relationship between Fanan, Baqa, and Sharia is actually a very intimate one. And with that, and with apologies for anything that I might have said that, was, uh, that you know, wasn't on spot or wasn't correct or too long or wearing you out or anything like that on a zoom on a zoom talk i apologize and thank you thank you for having me